A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Nudge. Have you ever heard of it? It's an enormously influential book. It was first published in 2008 and it's just being republished now. And it really launched the whole science of nudge theory, of behavioral economics, how businesses, governments, organizations can better affect the outcomes of their consumers in more discreet, subtle ways. And it was so big that not only here in the UK, when David Cameron was prime minister, they created a special nudge unit in the government. The same thing happened in the United States at the level of the European Commission, at the European Union, the United Nations. And indeed, last year in 2020, the World Health Organization has launched its own behavioral insights unit dedicated to vaccines and masks and how to encourage people to uptake them at greater levels. So it is a hugely influential book and it's changed the way that governments think. No longer do they just make the rules and expect people to obey them. They are now thinking in this much more creative roundabout way of how to persuade or cajole or affect people's judgments. The author, co-author is Professor Richard Thaler. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2017 for his work on behavioral insights and behavioral economics. Um, he is the professor of behavioral science at the Booth Business School at the University of Chicago. And he joins us now. Hi, Professor. Uh, it's nice to be here. So for those few people who don't know what nudge is, could you start maybe by just giving us a, a summary? What is nudge theory? The idea of, of a nudge is it's some feature of the environment that attracts our attention and influences our behavior. And uh, nudges work without forcing anybody to do anything or offering any economic reward. And according to standard economic theory, all nudges would have exactly no effect. And so the point of the book when we wrote it back in 2008 was to say, what are the possibilities of things that we can do to help people using just these nudges and the what we call choice architecture, which is creating the environment in which people choose. Can we use those tools to help people make better decisions. 
which is not to say we should limit ourselves to those, but what are the possibilities of tying one hand behind our back and saying, how much can we do with this? So this has been enormously influential, I would say. I mean, it's hard to think of a, of a book or an idea that has had so much influence in recent decades. Here in the UK, there was a, a behavioral insights unit, which became known as the nudge unit in David Cameron's government. Uh, that's still ongoing, although it's now sort of pri more private organization. I believe United States government, uh, the European Commission, the United Nations, a lot of these supranational uh, institutions have also got special behavioral insights units. What do you think the impact has been? I mean, what do you feel the impact has been over these previous years? Well, uh, certainly uh, the ideas have spread. Uh, according to one, one count, there are 400 such units in governments and NGOs around the world and countless others in the private sector. Uh, I think the most important contribution they've made is to create a tradition of testing. This may be a surprising answer, but uh, people think of these units as going around tweaking things, and uh, may, that may be some of what they do, but the most important thing they do is evaluate what works. And I was just reading about a study this morning that was done in Bangladesh of a gigantic experiment involving hundreds of thousands of people on what it takes to encourage people to wear masks. And um, this sort of large-scale testing is being done by governments and research units all around the world. And um, it's not that we invented that idea, but we've helped spread it. And it's the thing I'm most proud of. So I guess there's a fine line, isn't there? And I'm really interested to see where you draw that line between just innocuous, um, improving decisions, making processes smoother, um, and more active kind of manipulation, I suppose. It's a word that doesn't appear very often in, in the book, but does appear. Where do you see that line? How, how can we distinguish between good nudging and sinister nudging? Well, for, first of all, I should say that you don't see the word manipulation very much in the book because we don't think that nudging, as we define it, is manipulation, and it's almost never secret. This is one big misconception. Uh, the whole point of nudging is for people to notice. Uh, you know, one of my favorite nudges, one that has saved my life on my many visits to London are those friendly little look right signs you see on the street that help us Americans not get run over by oncoming traffic. Uh, were those to be printed in invisible ink, um, they would not nudge nor manipulate. Now, of course, nudging is not limited to people with good intentions. Uh, schemers and scammers have known how to nudge. We, we didn't invent nudging, we gave it a name. We didn't invent choice architecture, we gave that a name. And uh, certainly in the private sector, we see lots of choice architecture we disapprove of. As a result, we included a new chapter in this, the final edition of Nudge, uh, on what we call sludge. The mantra of Nudge and what I kept repeating 
ad nauseum in the early days of the behavioral insight team is if you want people to do something, make it easy. Well, the, if you want to prevent people from doing something, you make it difficult. We call that sludge. There's a, a practice I strongly disapprove of that uh, various things that require you to join or subscribe make joining easy and unsubscribing difficult. That's what we call sludge. Uh, we think it should be purged. Right. So this is the kind of effect that we're used to on websites when we buy airplane tickets and to try and not get all the extras turns into being quite a difficult thing to do because you've got to find little buttons. That's what you mean by sludge then, which is unhelpful nudging. Correct. And, you know, for 13 years, I've been signing copies of the book Nudge for Good, which was meant as a plea, but not a naive expectation that everyone would nudge for good. Uh, you know, part of nudging is framing or just how you describe something that will influence what people do. Perhaps the greatest um, practitioner of the art of framing in the last decade was Dom Cummings, uh, who coined the brilliant phrase, take back control, to describe why uh, the United Kingdom should withdraw from the EU. He explicitly credits behavioral economics for the inspiration for that phrase, because we talk about loss aversion. People hate losing. So let's describe that we've lost something and that we're going to take it back. That's brilliant. Now, whether that's an accurate description of the process of losing your vote in the EU can, is open to question. But um, so, it was so, no doubt a brilliant slogan. So did he nudge for good? Not, not in my opinion, but um, those who favored Brexit mm. um, would disagree. Um, I think you're almost being too modest, uh, Professor, in the way you talk about the book's impact. You say we didn't invent it, we only named it. But having lived through this era, I think your book was hugely influential and has changed the world because it it elevated into a science that was widely known and understood, um, something that may have been there before, but was more um, obscure. Um, and it's become, Dominic Cummings, you mentioned as an example, it's become the kind of watchword for people in government, in large corporations. Everyone now wants to be an expert in this kind of behavioral science. So I think it, it has changed the world. And I guess my, my challenge to you is whether the effect of that is is good or not. Because, I mean, you could argue that people being alert to those things that might be nudging them all the time, understandably makes them paranoid. And what we've seen in the last 15 years since that book was published is a big increase in the number of people who fundamentally feel they're being manipulated by government all the time, and they turn to outlandish conspiracies and so on. I, just wonder, do you see any connection there that, that the sort of universality of nudge has made people paranoid? I don't know. We, uh, I've rarely been called too modest, so I'm, I'm still trying to cope with that. Uh, my wife would disagree. But um, when I say we didn't invent nudging, you know, there was nudging in the Garden of Eden. Um, and Bernie Madoff didn't need to read our book 
to figure out how to take people's money. Um, I think if people are more alert to the ways in which they are being nudged or manipulated, that's a good thing. That I am more alert now. I never subscribe to anything that I can't unsubscribe to with one click. That's my rule. Uh, I try to teach my students to operate their businesses that way. I teach at a business school and I'll be teaching in London virtually in two weeks. Um, and that will be one of the lessons. Um, whether whether governments are nudging for for good or bad will greatly depend on one's views. So if we, you know, I've been writing and saying recently that now in this final phase of the uh, effort to get people to be vaccinated, we need more than nudging. We need mandates. Uh, now, no governments have, as far as I know, mandated a vaccine, but many private sectors have. My university, you have to be vaccinated if you want to teach or be a student uh, in the semester that's about to begin. Uh, some places are requiring that to get into bars or sporting events. That's beyond nudging. I mean, I, I really want to come on to the pandemic. I think there's some really interesting things to, to go into there. I just want to sort of get this bigger picture point across and see what how you react to it, which is that perhaps one effect of your book is that governments now consider it totally acceptable, in fact, part of their sort of skill set to be expert in behavioral economics. Um, and it's more of a kind of accepted norm, really, that um, in implementing policies, governments will constantly be thinking of clever ways to nudge you into behaving differently. And, and I wonder whether, in a way, there are certain settings where you expect to be nudged, you know, commercial setting, if someone is selling you something, you kind of expect him to sell you something. Or, uh, you know, there may be other examples, even a political campaign, I think you take it with a pinch of salt, because you're like, okay, this guy is, he's trying to get elected. But if the government in its everyday 24 hours a day engagement with you, which is so all consuming, is constantly pushing and pulling you in different ways, is that a good thing? Well, uh, again, it depends on the application. Uh, the UK has adopted one of the most successful uh, pension schemes in the world, and it's based explicitly on the idea of nudging. This is the Nest uh, retirement system, and uh, Lord Adair Turner was the uh, leader in this effort. And the, a decision had to be made, should this be mandatory, or should they use the behavioral idea of automatic enrollment. And um, they decided to use automatic enrollment. Many people criticized that, saying, no, no, we have to require this. Well, something over 90% of the people are participating in that. That's quite a success. Now, you can argue, some have, that it would have been better to have 100%. Um, that, you know, there's room for debate about that. I, I, I think 90% uh, plus freedom of choice is a very good option, but it's certainly good if the people creating these programs 
know what works and what doesn't. And that it's possible to achieve many things uh, if you're clever about it. One of the first tests that the Behavioral Insight team did was how should you write letters to people who owe money on their taxes? And it turns out well-written letters get money back sooner. Um, you know, it doesn't cost any more to, to write a well-phrased letter than a poorly phrased letter. So we're in, in favor of governments working more efficiently and less intrusively. That's our goal. So let me put another example to you. So in recent months, obviously, the UK has a big vaccination scheme. Um, which has actually been going well, if that's you know how you determine it, a high, high percentage of uptake. And the government has been threatening to introduce various schemes at distant points in the future, such as mandatory vaccine passports to enter nightclubs or restaurants and those kind of things. There's a lot of skepticism about whether they will actually do that when those distant deadlines come. Um, and a lot of people presume they're just being nudged and that this is part of skillful kind of nudging of people by making it indicating that life is going to be tough if you don't get vaccinated in the future. So that way, they're not going to need to mandate it. Is that a good example? Are you happy with that nudge? Well, I think I'd be even happier if they went through with it. So certainly in the US, I applaud the mandates at my university. I applaud the mandates in some cities that you need to show proof of vaccination to participate in some activities. Uh, we long ago stopped allowing people to smoke in public. People can disagree about whether that was a good or bad policy, but it made non-smokers healthier and it encouraged a lot of people to quit smoking because it became more inconvenient. Now. That's not nudging. That's regulating. Would it be fair to say that in the past 15 years, you yourself have evolved in your thinking? Are you now more comfortable with overt mandating instead of just nudging? Should we have a follow-up book called Shove or, no. or Force? No, no, not at all. Um, we, we, are, we were explicit in the first version of the book and are more explicit in this one, that the appropriate tool depends on the problem. So for example, there was a chapter on climate change 13 years ago. There's a bigger chapter on climate change, as you might expect in this version. And in both cases, we start by saying, this is an existential crisis for the planet. It requires every tool we have including nudging, but by no means limited to nudging. Like every economist in the world, I favor having a carbon tax or cap and trade because we won't save the planet unless we get the prices right. Uh, we, there are lots of laws in our society. Fraud is illegal. Assault is illegal. Lots of things, uh, vaccinations are mandatory for children. We have a, whole, a tool set of which nudge is just one. And um, we use the analogy that it's like a Swiss army knife. It's very versatile. It can help in many problems. Um, but, you know, it's not a bulldozer. 
Let me ask you about uh, this example. I was uh, rereading your book uh, in preparation for this interview. You've reissued um, it, a slightly amended, slightly edited version. And, and actually completely rewritten. There we Two go. Two thirds new. Even better. So I looked at uh, the section on libertarian paternalism, which is the phrase you use to describe what the political philosophy of a nudger might be. Do you want to just quickly kind of explain that paradox to our viewers? Sure. So paternalism, by our definition, just help is helping people achieve their goals as they decide. Uh, libertarian or liberal uh, just means doing so without restricting anyone's choice. Our favorite example of good nudging is GPS. You get to plug in the destination. It suggests routes. You can override them. Everybody's happy. Both Cass and I are terrible at navigation, and uh, it's been a huge improvement in our lives, and we've never felt forced to go anywhere. When you're describing this in the book, you, you get to the libertarian phrase, and you say... Um, that you want to make it easy for people to make their own choices and go their own way. And then there's a parenthesis, and it says like this, we emphasize that when people are inflicting harm on others, freedom of choice is not the best idea. But even in such cases, nudges can play an important role. We also acknowledge that if people are making really terrible choices and harming their future selves, nudges might not be enough. We'll get to that. So I'm wondering, first of all, it looked like maybe that sentence was, was added for this new edition. It didn't seem to be in the old edition. And to my head, that was a sort of pandemic reference. Is that, was that what you meant? It sounded masks and vaccines. Uh, well, I, I think that's what we would call the availability heuristic. That, uh, it, when you're reading that in um, the summer of... 2021, you're naturally going to think about COVID. Well, it was added. Uh, it was some, it was added in 20. It was added last year, wasn't it, for the first time? It was added last year. But one of the things we explicitly decided not to do is write extensively about COVID, precisely because most of the work on rewriting the book uh, was done a year ago, um, say April to November of 2020. Uh, book publishing is slow. And well, that was peak, uh, that was peak pandemic. Period. It was peak pandemic, but people's information kept changing every month. And we absolutely didn't want to write things that we would regret a month later. So we talk about it. We, we were very conscious that we're writing it in the midst of that. But that reference is by no means uh, meant to be nudge specific. Look, if if there's some product that we discover is uh, harmful, if you ingest it, then we think that the, it, you shouldn't be able to buy it. And that that's one role of government is to test food products and make sure that um, Biscuits are not poisonous. So uh, there are things that are bad for us that don't have anything to do with COVID. I, I guess 
It has also been an enormously consequential period in terms of political philosophy. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And in terms of the way people think about these terms, and it was just interesting that you you had to caveat now the word libertarian, saying, "Ah, oh, but not if it not if freedom of choice is inflicting harm on others." I wonder whether you think that the kind of concept of libertarian, the concept of, of freedom of choice has in some way been damaged by the past 18 months? No, no. I'm, you know, it, as I as I said, we just we did rewrite the book from cover to cover, but I'm sure there's an equivalent sentence in the original edition because we never meant to suggest that nudges are the answer to every problem and that we can always avoid mandates, far from it. It's one tool, and uh, uh, we, we always wanted to emphasize that. I, I saw you recently wrote a piece in The Times, The New York Times, on this hotly contested question, um, where you said nudges aren't enough, as you just told us now, in the world of vaccination. And that, quote, it would be good public policy if those who refuse to be vaccinated are compelled to spend more time alone. So there's a sense there that nudges, we're sort of putting nudges aside 
for these kind of problems, and we it's it you, you basically think it's better to go on full mandating. Uh, I wouldn't say we're putting nudges aside. We are. We don't. Nobody could have predicted how far we would get with nudging. So, I think in countries where the rollout has been reasonably successful, as it has been in the U.S. and the U.K. and uh, much of Europe, uh, we went through this middle phase of making sure it was free and easy for anyone who wanted a vaccine to get one, and make sure that people kept getting the message that vaccines are very rarely harm you and greatly help you. Now, that has left us with a stubborn third of the population that, for whatever reason, are choosing not to be vaccinated. Distressingly, in the United States, there's a strong political flavor to that. The single best predictor of whether you're vaccinated is the percentage of people in your zip code who voted for Donald Trump. And that's distressing. I can't remember a political party ever being against health. But uh, if, you know, it's very much like climate change. Uh, we knew about climate change 30 years ago, and we knew about it 13 years ago when we published the book. And anyone who's pleased with the progress we've made over the past 13 years hasn't been paying attention. And so our basic approach hasn't changed, but I would say the urgency of the language has changed a bit because the urgency of the problem has changed. And if we were up to 90% vaccinated in both of our countries, then I wouldn't have written that column in the New York Times. Do you think there's any chance that some of that stubborn third, as you call them, are actually made more stubborn by the sense that they're being nudged all the time. I mean, do you think there's a connection there that actually they, they become so exhausted by the having to be so vigilant against being manipulated that they sort of take a defiant position and say to hell with it, I'm just saying no to everything? Well, uh, it doesn't help that um, people, including you, uh, call it manipulated. Um, we used to call this public health. Um, it took 50 years to convince people that it was unhealthy to smoke. I think uh, in the early years, like the 70s and 80s, uh, smokers felt like they were being manipulated. Um, we, if you look back now, the messaging was very mild and the manipulation was being done by the tobacco companies. So one person's educational campaign is another person's manipulation. And um, I, I think uh, governments have not been downplaying risks of vaccinations or exaggerating the benefits. Uh, I, in, in my view, uh, most governments have been pretty balanced about that. And it's not getting us up where we need to be, especially facing the Delta variant. And so, um, you know, if 
if somebody asked me, should you be required to be vaccinated to go to a football match? Um, if I were setting the rules, I would say yes. There's one um, interesting chapter uh, in your um, new version, which may have been there originally called about herd mentality or following the herd, I think it's called. Yes. Which is particular interest to us as we are called unheard. Um, so we, we try to not follow the herd or at least think independently. Um, and there was one paragraph in it that, that really leapt out at me where you said that telling people that a new norm is emerging say in the domain of sustainability, can create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Many do not want to be on the wrong side of history. And if they learn that people are increasingly doing something, they might think that what seemed difficult or even impossible is achievable, maybe even inevitable. So there's a sense that if you tell people something is happening, they're more likely to get on board with it. Is that, do you hear that being deployed a lot uh, at the moment? I mean. Uh, well, cer yes, cer certainly. I mean, if we go back to the conversation we were just having about COVID, I, I think it's more helpful to stress that 70% of the people have chosen to be vaccinated than to be fretting about the 30% that haven't. And there's lots of science that suggests that kind of messaging is more helpful. But incentives also matter. The the National Football League, that other kind of football we play in America, uh, has gotten the vaccination rate of its players up over 90%, partly through nudging and partly through incentives. Uh, if you're vaccinated, you get treated better. And right, right, right now, teams are being required to get down to their roster limits. And players who are unvaccinated are finding if they're right on the border of making the team, they're not as likely to make it if they're a risk of getting COVID. Right. I guess, you know, it's about whether um, some of this paranoia and distrust could be averted um, if, if governments used the tools you describe so skillfully in this less sort of ham-fistedly. I mean, you, you talk of another example about the governor of Montana who put big posters up uh, along the street saying Montanans wear face coverings all the time. This is pictures of people skiing and shooting and doing kind of outdoors activities with face coverings on. I'm sure some Montanans would have seen that and thought, great, I'm going to wear a face mask. There will be a percentage of them who saw that and thought, this is another example of the government trying to nudge me. You know, there's someone's been reading Thaler again and they're going to try and get me to want to belong to the herd. Screw them. I'm definitely not going to wear a face mask now. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, uh, who was it who said you can't please all the people all the time? Uh, you know, in the, in the original version of the book, we had quoted a very successful anti-littering campaign in Texas that was based on don't mess with Texas. And... Um, I think it's in the same spirit of that Montana campaign. And um, I'm guessing that on net it's helpful, but that's an empirical question, which goes back to what I said at the beginning, where you accused me of being too modest, that the biggest contribution has been to make sure we test everything. 
So it's a testable hypothesis that that Montana campaign has hurt more than it has helped. I would bet that it has helped, mm. but um, maybe it helped. I'm, maybe it, I'm often wrong. Uh, potentially, I have no evidence for this, but potentially it helped increase mask wearing, but also increased levels of distrust against the governor of Montana. Both things could be true. Both both things could be true, mm. and um, we we may learn. Let me, um, let, Professor, yeah. let, let me ask you to draw the line then. So instead of me um, trying to get you anxious about potential side effects of nudging, let's go all the way to the other extreme and look at a regime like China um, and where the communist government is kind of, uh, they've gone way beyond nudging at this point. They have a whole system of social credit where um, a lot of your actions are recorded and they have very material consequences. They are being more than nudged all of the time, is that too much? Absolutely. And the whole point of nudge is to say, how much can we achieve by, if even if we're willing to tie one hand behind our back and not require anyone to do anything? That, that was the, the, the theory behind the original book. It's an alternative to China. We don't want to live in a state where we don't have freedom of speech. We don't want to live in a state uh, where people are telling us what to do. Now, nevertheless, we live in a world that is increasingly on fire. And, you know, just this past week, California is on fire and New Orleans is being hit with a gigantic uh, hurricane and um, you know we have fires in Greece. You know that we're in a desperate situation, and we could respond to it the way the Chinese might, which is just to tell everybody what what to do. We think wherever possible we should start with nudging, and I continue to think that, but I think. In many situations, we need to go beyond nudging. We're not the only tool in the toolbox. Is, I mean, you say it's an alternative to China. I, I guess if I were the spokesman of the Chinese regime now, I would say, no, no, this is good nudging because we're not telling people what to do. They just get a social credit score. And if it gets low, it may make their life a little difficult. We're not outlawing anything. They just might not be able to go on holiday so often. Is 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 there a, is there a risk in that kind of um, employing social herd mentality, the influence of one's peers? Is there a risk that it sort of devolves um, that kind of pressure away from a simple world where the government sets the laws and everyone either obeys them or doesn't into a more of a murky world where your neighbours look at you and your position in the community and governments can kind of deploy the community to try and enforce their rules to try and get away from actually mandating them? You know, I, no, I think the answer to this is something that we say uh, right at the beginning of the book, which is that it's a misconception to think that you can avoid nudging. It's simply not possible. So we could have a government that is silent on every issue. Um, you know, we, we begin the book this time the way we began it, Originally, with the story of somebody who runs a cafeteria and decide, and learns that 
the food that the kids eat depends on the order in which the food is displayed. Now, once you know that, you realize that you have to arrange the food somehow. And you can choose to put the apples um, more prominently displayed than the sweets or vice versa, uh, but you have to do something. And governments have to operate in some way. And I prefer to live in a world where I can access everything on the web rather than live in a place like China. And um, I think it's unhelpful to suggest that efforts to encourage people to save more for retirement or to eat healthy or to take sensible precautions against COVID, uh, I think using the word manipulation for that activity uh, hurts and that that's damaging. And um, I, I, I think we would be better off describing it if, if there is manipulation, so I'm willing to say that what Dominic Cummings was doing was manipulation, because I don't think he believed for a minute that the UK had lost control and that Brexit was going to get it back. Uh, in fact, he might deny that now. But, uh, but, but creating a slogan because you think it will influence people not help them is not what we're about. We're about helping people as they define it, helping them achieve their goals as they define them. And we, and, and that's it. Let me end by trying to see if we can find a, a, a common bogeyman here, Professor, the one that we can agree is a, it has flaws. Um, and that is the big tech companies, because they really, they, they, they took the ideas in nudge and they really, they really went, went to town on them. And they've probably gone far beyond what you had envisaged. Google gets a one favorable mention in this book, but I'm just wondering, do you feel that the combined might now of Facebook and Google and YouTube and, and Twitter to nudge people control what information people see. Do, are you, does that worry you? Well, I think it worries me less than it worries you. <laughs> um, I, I, I think... Um, I mean, we're talking success, on YouTube, I should say. So, I mean, it's clearly not worrying me yeah. that much. You know, so I think the companies, those companies have grown enormously in the 13 years since we wrote the book. Twitter barely existed. Uh, both of us had just bought our first smartphones. One of the reasons we rewrote the book is the world has changed so much. But if you think of firms like Apple and Google and Amazon and Twitter um, and Netflix that have grown so enormously, part of the reason they've grown so well is they're so good at what they do. Uh, Apple phones work when you take them out of the box. You don't need an instruction manual. Nobody's ever gotten lost on the Amazon website. Um, if, imagine going into a bookstore that had every book for sale. It would be a frightening experience. Now, uh, 
do I think it's wise to let those firms keep buying potential competitors? No, I don't. Um, and so there are interesting antitrust issues. Um, many people are afraid of algorithms. Personally, I love algorithms. Um, the uh, I listen to music on Spotify. There's a feature called Discover Weekly that gives me a playlist that some algorithm chose just for me. Yours would be different. I think that's wonderful. Um, if they uh, suggest a new album I might like or uh, a concert by one of my favorite artists who happens to be in town and they know where I'm living, some people get frightened by that. I say, whoopee. Uh, so, you know, I. So, what, I what think, does frighten you then, Professor? You, you seem hard to intimidate. Uh, I don't like fishing expeditions. Uh, I don't like. Uh, I, mean, I don't I, I like guess a I meant... lot of what financial sector firms are doing to their customers. Uh, I, I don't like uh, the fact that you can uh, join more easily than unjoin. But I must say that the firms we've just been describing do almost none of that. And they, a lot of their services are free. Um, uh, and uh, the ones that they do charge, um, you, they make a point of you can cancel at any time without calling London during business hours like that other times newspaper requires you to do. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a professor at a business school and I spend a lot of time trying to teach my students what it means to have good corporate responsibility. And uh, one of the lessons is, and I, I, I didn't invent this, that don't do it if you wouldn't want it to appear on the front page of the newspaper. Now, there, there are many practices that I don't think pass that test. Uh, Uber and Lyft were charging $1,000 for rides from Lake Tahoe to Reno when it was catching on fire. I think that's both evil and stupid business practice. And that's the lesson I try to teach to my students. So finally, Professor, what message would you give to those people, and they are very, very numerous, who are deeply anxious about the combined dangers of a more authoritarian uh, government, the huge untrammeled power of these big technology companies, some of the uh, uh, pandemic legislation that's happened in the past 80 months, all indicating a world where we are much more controlled by powers that we have very little agency over. Would you tell them to relax? What would you tell those people? I, I would say they should read our book. And, uh, and that I meant that as a suggestion. Feel free to take it out of the library. Um, I don't make any money on these. So, um, and learn how the world works, but uh, learn to distinguish between 
helpful information campaigns and what some people are calling manipulation. Manipulation, I would define as uh, misleading um, and, uh, and sort of trickery. And we're against all of that. We're, we're against transparency. We, I, I, I bet you can find the word transparency 30 times in the book. That's what we like is transparency. But we also like helping people. And if every time, you know, it, it, do you really think that those signs that say look right are manipulating us uh, dumb Europeans and Americans who drive on the other side of the road? Or is it trying to help them? I find it helpful. Professor Richard Thaler, thank you for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. That was Professor Richard Thaler from the University of Chicago, author of Nudge, Nobel Laureate. He was defending his science, behavioral science, which he is one of the great inventors of, against the charge which I was leveling at him, that actually it increased distrust and it made people anxious and paranoid to feel that they were being nudged all the time. Um, up to you to decide whether you thought he made a good account of himself, but what a great conversation. Thank you to him and thanks for watching. This is Unheard. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.